Welcome, witches and ghouls. We are pleased to say that we are a part of the Morbidly Beautiful podcast network and family. Morbidly Beautiful is your macabre home away from home with horror news, reviews, editorials, and more. Morbidly Beautiful supports everyone in the horror community from special effects artists, indie filmmakers, writers, women, LGBTQ folks, and so much more. And we are so happy to be part of the spooky team. Please go to morbidlybeautiful.com to find out more. And now on with the show. I spin on your podcast, a monthly horror podcast brought to you by the Spinsters of Horror. This is a time once a month where Jess puts down her bloody nitty needles and I step away from the TV to discuss horror movies and sometimes other horror mediums with thoughtful analysis, research, and passion. In this episode, we return to Woodsboro to discuss films two to four of the Scream franchise. We'll be talking about the pitiful use and weaponization of the phone and the technology as part of the modus operandi of Ghostface and how the quest for notoriety makes Ghostface such an infamous horror villain of the 1990s. So pick your poison and listen on if you dare. Hello, who is this? What's your favorite scary movie? So we actually visited Scream. From 1996, the first original movie and our second episode of this podcast. So we'll be focusing more on the later entries in the series with touching a bit on the OG itself. But I have to say my first experience with this franchise is when I watched Scream in the theater for the very first time. Oh, the good old days. I loved it (laughs) so much. I became obsessed with the series. I think I pretty much have seen all of them in theaters, maybe not Scream 4 for whatever reason. And it's my second favorite franchise, the other one being Nightmare on Elm Street. And if you guys remember from the first episode, I saw the very first Scream movie at a sleepover, (laughs) which in high school, which terrified me. So I actually (laughs) avoided the Scream franchise until after I turned 30. So like that memory stuck with me so much that I was so terrified of the Scream franchise that I was just like... I'm never going to watch these. So it wasn't until up until almost like I'm 36 now, four years ago, that I watched mm. two, three, and four. <laughs> <laughs> and I really do enjoy them, especially now for this episode, uh, watching the films with the focus that we went into. I'm like, okay, now I love this series. Mm-hmm. And you'll probably see something later on down the road uh, just talking about Sydney Prescott mm-hmm. herself and what she represents that series. Excellent. I love that you watched it later on. I think that that's fun. It's so fun to hear about people discovering things for the first time later in life, because as you watch it in your 30s is going to be very different as when I watched it when I was like 16, 17 years old, you know, and I I love that because we I even I view this series differently now than I did when they all came out because I'm an adult now. I've lived some life. I just related characters differently. So I think that that's really interesting. I love that. But I also at the same time, too, though, like can imagine what it felt like to see all the new movies coming out after you saw the first one when you're younger. Because I remember very vividly the radio commercials for whenever the Scream movies were coming out. Oh. And I would <laughs> shut those commercials off because you would hear like the phone ringing yep. and like, what's your favorite scary movie? And then yep. they start, you know, what back yep. in the day when horror movie commercials were on the radio. And I'd be like, nope. That movie terrified me. I will never see this movie. Like, I had built it up so much in my mind because of that memory. So I could, but like, at the same time, too, I'm like, imagine how exciting it would have been to see those movies when they were coming out and experiencing that 
that adrenaline. It was a fun. It was a fun time when all these '90s teen slashers were coming out, which was, you know, that's when I. That's where I grew up, and that's what I grew up with. So I have a fondness for all of them. Anyways, yeah. So let's lead into your likes. <laughs> Our <then>. likes. <laughs> so generalized likes. So many things. So so many things. I love how meta these movies are. Self-referential. They're really smart, smart movies. I think they're very effective slasher movies overall, which is great to see because that's what they are. They're slasher movies. The characters, the arcs of our characters, because all the ones, if you live, um, they do have arcs. And I love that. Um, the reusing of the same actors of this entire franchise, like they champion this franchise. And that's amazing. And again, you don't often get that so much in franchises. There's not many horror franchises these days, but that's that's unique. I love that because you also have, you know, like well-established actors as well willing to come back to these movies it's not like the 80s where they're like, oh, I'm just going to pretend I didn't do horror movies in the 80s. And they just they're kind of embarrassed by it or ashamed by it. But no, they yep. champion like Nev Campbell is coming back. And I, I love that so much about it. Sydney, Gail, Randy. I love Matthew Lillard. Been doing a Matthew Lillard month. <laughs> yeah. And of course, Sarah Michelle Geller has to make an appearance because she was hot during this time as well. So of course, I love that. Was it season, what season of Buffy is her hair, <laughs> Kelly? <laughs> two. Two. <laughs> season I can two tell Buffy. by her hair. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and each film has something to say. And I think the series builds upon itself after each individual release and I think that also is hugely unique for the franchise and I love the Scream 2 cafeteria scene where Jerry O'Connell sings to Sydney. like I am not a romantic person but I fucking love that moment every time it's so cute oh goodness and I'm like that's one of my dislikes <laughs> alright well, go ahead with your likes the fuck out of my horror movies Ooh. um my likes, okay, so I love the soundtrack to this, these, these mm, movies. Okay. Like, you know, yep. I, I love the back in those, like, those two, 90s and 2000s movies, you always got those, like, really fun soundtracks. Oh, yeah. And so, it's and every time it. I, so whenever I hear Red Right Hand, I'm like, yeah, oh, that's Scream. scream. Like, that's a Scream instantly. song forever. That's and always. Forever, yeah. yeah. Did it so, even exist before Scream? I don't know. Doesn't matter. It did. I know it, it did. Was, Obviously, yeah. I know it did. But, like, when it comes on, you're right. It's so iconic. And then we hear it again in Scream 4. It's so great. Right? You hear it again in Scream 2. Like, it comes back and you're like, nope. We're getting into it now. The first murder happened. So I love... So it's funny because everyone knows that I'm not a huge slasher fan. I don't like slashers, but I love the Scream franchise. Mm. And one of the biggest things uh, that I love about it is, A... This is the time that the final girl changed and we get a different uh, final girl from this. Mm -hmm. And you guys will get to read about that in the future uh, from Kelly's piece when it comes out <laughs> for the Horror Homeroom. For the Horror Homeroom. Wow, I'm an old woman. Mm -hmm. I love Nev Campbell. Obviously, I wrote about her. She was my first horror crush. Mm, yes. So when I saw her in Scream, I had a huge crush on her and just like I love her character. I love Sydney's journey. It is so powerful and mm -hmm. it's so interesting and something that I can like relate to and I know that a lot of other women when they watch the franchise in its entirety can relate to mm -hmm. like you said interesting characters I love Randy I love how I can like relate to the mm -hmm. character of Randy in the first one into the second one and then again Kirby later on Absolutely. like and you get that revisit yeah. like I yeah. love how in the fourth one they're trying to like get those characters that we loved in the beginning kind of but like a different versions of them so yeah. instead of you know we got our super male geeky horror nerd but then you get our super sexy geeky horror nerd yeah and you're like you know in Kirby yeah so and I love that the series takes us into all these different avenues and like you said they're so meta about the horror 
or genre, but they're also at the same time too having some sort of commentary about what's happening at the context of the time. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we're gonna get into this because we definitely, when we watch the series, we're like, oh wow, these are big themes that were happening at the times that these movies were being filmed. So it's like they're being meta about the horror genre and mm-hmm. everything about the horror genre, but they're also being very meta about life mm-hmm. and absolutely this industry and. Ghostface is a terrifying killer. Mm-hmm. Like, in my mind, like, I, yeah. he is, a, you know, like, he could be anyone and stalking you and murdering him and then seeing that film for, like, the first time and then watching him continue on to grow in throughout the series, like, mm-hmm. you just get really, it's unnerving because mm-hmm. he could be anyone. Whereas, for me, like, other franchises like Friday the 13th and uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, like, those killers are very, like, supernatural to me. Mm-hmm. And Ghostface is Absolutely. Isn't. I like we get always interesting cast. I always like the love the little cheeky references in these films. So when like in the first film, Nev Campbell's like, yeah, they'll get Tori Spelling to play me in this series, yep. and then literally they in Scream Two, they get Tori Spelling. <laughs> I'm just like, so I love that continuity. Forget. Yeah, and like yeah. you said, you bring you bring it up. They keep the same the, ca- the same characters keep coming back, but like they remember things from the first movie that was referenced, and then it's carried on to the second one. And it gets carried on. You're yeah. like, oh, I yep. love this. Like you. You know, so if you're a huge Scream fan, you just, you find out more things each time. You get these huge Easter eggs. So I, I'm just gushing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I don't normally gush as much. So here I am. I don't. <laughs> you do not. Yes. It's, well, we've got like four movies, you know, to, to gush about and they're fantastic. So dislikes, uh, what are your dislikes besides the incredibly cute and romantic cafeteria scene <laughs> in Scream 2 with Jerry O'Connell, National Treasure? Sorry. Yeah, I know. Right. And I, um, so one of my dislikes is I dislike... Scream 3. It's mm. not necessarily my favorite entry in the franchise because I felt like it got... They're trying to be too funny in it. And I was mm. like, why Why are we injecting humor into this? Like, I, I like the subtle humor that mm-hmm, comes, mm-hmm. but, like, this is this very serious thing that's happening, and so why are they trying to, like, Hollywoodized it? So I feel like that's very Hollywoodized. Mm-hmm. And then I find Scream 4 falls into the category of being too long. <laughs> like, mm, interesting. Like, I, I watch, like, watching all the other ones, I'm like, oh, hour and a half, I get a decent slasher, I know the formula, and then with the Scream 4, I'm just like, this movie's almost two hours. Mm-hmm. Why? Mm. <laughs> you know, why are we really, why does it have to be that long? Because I feel like there's some elements in Scream 4 that we could just, you know, take out. Those are really the only things that I dislike. Well, obviously, he's not even in the movie. It's like, I obviously, I dislike Skeet Ulrich. I always will. But, right. In the um, first one, yes. Yeah. In the first yeah. one. But <laughs> in the other ones, like, as as films, I enjoy them, generally. Yeah. A couple of things would be with something that we'll touch on later, but I think also, I think the things that maybe we don't like, your comment about Scream 3 being very Hollywood is actually maybe a commentary on Hollywood. Like that whole yeah, movie yeah. is about the film industry. So it's interesting because I these movies know what they are. Kevin yeah. Williamson knows, but he didn't write Scream 3. He knows like generally, like they know what these movies are and what they're about and what they're going to say. So I think they're super smart and maybe there's even like layers upon layers upon layers of commentary that maybe we're not even hitting on, you know? Mm. So I think that's really interesting, which comes to my point of that the franchise is a very white franchise, unfortunately. Um, It is. But there's also kind of commentary on that in the opening of Scream 2. So I feel like maybe the franchise actually just knows that it is. And here is our comment on it. Means they didn't really change that in 3 and 4 at all. But I don't really like that early, like when early 90s, you could kind of quote you know, not really pay mind, quote unquote, because of the time, but definitely not in Scream 4. We should know better. I think there's like one person of color and it's a cop. He dies. I don't like the weird mom dreams in Scream 3. 
I really don't like those. I don't really know. I get like why they're there in a sense of like they're very foreboding and it's making Sydney want to figure out what's going on. It's like alluding to something going on with her mom, but it's weird and it kind of has that fantastical element to it, which is what this this franchise is not. So I don't like though. They seemed very out of place when I rewatched it uh, recently. So I don't like those. And I fucking hate Roman. I don't like him as Ghostface. He blows up a house, which is very not a slasher MO. Um, right? And that's what bothers me about yeah. Scream 3. I'm like, this is too Hollywood. Ghostface would want to explode something. This is- he is a filmmaker, so it makes sense that like his shit would be bigger than like a small town slasher. Like again, I've got stuff it's to say fine. about Roman. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't like Roman. I love Scott Foley, who plays Roman. He is a 90s icon, but I fucking hate Roman. He is the worst. (laughs) So those are my dislikes. I feel like we are ready to dive into this because we just keep like touching on things. But I think it's time to jump into this. So let's start talking about the Scream franchise. Omega Beta Zeta. Hello. Yes. Who is this? CC. Who's this? What are you calling for? What if I said you? What if I said goodbye? Why would you want to do that? Why do you always answer a question with a question? I'm inquisitive. Yeah, and I'm impatient. Look, do you want to leave a message for someone? Do you want to die tonight? Do you think the killer will strike again? We have no evidence that this is a serial killer. Or we think it's just an isolated incident. It's a classic case of life imitating art, imitating life. That movie stabbed, bringing out the crazy. Are you suggesting that someone's trying to make a real life sequel? We're gonna do that. Sequels suck. No way. The way I see it, someone's out to make a sequel. You know, cash in on all the movie murder hoopla. So it's our job to observe the rules of the sequel. The body count is always bigger. (laughs) Death scenes are always much more alive. (laughs) More blood. More gore. Your core audience just expects it. How do we find the killer, Randy? That's what I want to know. Oh, let's look at the suspects. How about Gail Weathers? Hi, Gail Weathers, author of the Woodsboro Murders. Can't wait to see the movie. That's what reporters do, do we? They stage the news. Be kind, she saved our lives. But if she's not a killer, she's a target. What am I supposed to do? The story is monumental. Don't you want to be a part of that? Hello? Hello, Sydney. Remember me? What do you want? I want you. It's showtime. to your last cameraman. The guy got gutted. You're a professional cameraman. You've got to act like one. Let's get some work done. Yeah, let's go get killed. So when Kelly and I first sat down and decided we want to talk about the Scream franchise and revisit Ghostface as a villain of the 90s, one of the things we wanted to look at was the weaponization of the phone. You know, we saw this in the 1996 film and we see it throughout the series is 
Ghostface's weapon of choice is the phone. Yes, mm-hmm. we know he stabs, and mm-hmm. we, we know and that's he's always got a knife, but his, he taunts and threatens his victims through the phone. Mm-hmm. And so, being the history person that I am, there's <laughs> a little like, history about the phone, right? And, you know, just brief, some brief interesting notes, but, like, it's been 48 years since the cell phone was first invented, and that was in 1973, and holy shit, I didn't even realize that. Like, oh, for some reason... it's been, like, 50 years? Oh. Almost. It feels like, so much all, newer. <laughs> it feels so much newer, but it only has been 50 years since cell phones have been invented, and mm. the first cell phone was a Motorola, which was, like, <laughs> two and a half pounds, and only had 20 <laughs> minutes of battery life. And can you imagine that now? Like, yeah. we complain yeah. about, like, having too big of phones yeah. and being like, oh, my phone won't stay charged, and, like, back in the day. It's like early Zach Morris phone on Saved by the Bell as well. Like, exactly. that was a big brick, yeah. and that was early 90s. Yeah, that was the 90s. So, yeah. Another thing, so you mentioned uh, Zach Morris and Saved by the Bell. The phone, having a cell phone, especially in the 80s, was a symbol of wealth. Yeah. Because they cost so much. The Motorola itself cost over $9,000. Imagine that, right? Mm -hmm. And the only people who had these phones were people of status. The guys on Wall Street calling up, making their deals and stuff like that. You know, the rich kids. Yeah. We see that. We'll see this like later on in like the 80s and 90s television series. Whenever you saw someone with a phone, we're like, ooh, your family must be well off. You have a cell phone. Right. Yeah. But then the phones get smaller and smaller. They got more affordable. We, you know, we start using texting on screens. And then 2000s now, we literally have small computers in our hands. We're mm-hmm. walking around with iPhones and Androids, and we can text, we can call, we can do anything we want. So it was interesting that in 1995, again, which is around the time that is relevant to the like the scream coming out in 1996. 1995 showed the first flip phone. So that was cool when you actually could yeah. open it up. The Motorola StarTac. It became very popular. We saw it in Clueless. Pop culture reference is that that's the phone that they use in Clueless. And so that was very rich young people. Not yep. everybody had phones. Like, I don't remember seeing Ty with a cell phone. I mean, she is generally living in Beverly Hills, but she could have, like, commuted into. She didn't really look like the other girls, and I did not ever see her with a phone. So, interesting note is that, yes, you're right. It was more of a status symbol. Uh, We saw it in Clueless. 2007 is when Apple made the iPhone. I don't have these things, but I know a lot of people do. But that was... That was not even that long ago, so... Or maybe it was, but time has no meaning. (laughs) Anyways, but it's great in the series because we start with landlines, and as time goes on and things evolve and we get to Scream 4... And that's 2011. So that's still, that's even 10 years ago. And there was like lots of technology then. So I just love how how the series modernizes as does the technology that's used in it, which makes sense. But it's important because the phone is a vital, like you said, a vital weapon to Ghostface, even as it modernizes. And you think, well, you know, it's getting more evolved. It's more modern. You're going to use less of the phone. Absolutely not, because that is the main weapon. And we have not seen this weaponizing in the phone. And that's what makes this franchise, one of the things makes it so refreshing, so unique and awesome and stand out about other ones. We haven't seen weaponizing in the phone since the 70s from When a Stranger Calls, Black Christmas and Halloween. Back in those days, like the phone was almost like a harbinger of doom. Like, you know, you if you are in the if you're in a scene, it's really spooky and scary. And all of a sudden the phone rings and you jump. You're like, yeah. oh, my God, who is that? Great it's, jump it could scare. Be the killer, right. 
it could be the killer on the other line and you know when like you said in Black Christmas it was it was Ugh. obscene phone calls Ugh. from someone in the house and it just it terrifies you but then over time like you said the phone it it's more of a lifeline. We end up seeing throughout the horror movies that, you know, you're calling your friends and family to try and get for help, but at the same time, too, you can also somewhat be isolated by the mm-hmm. phone because if you have a landline and you can't run, you're, you're trapped. Mm-hmm. And Scream changed that in the very first scene where uh, Casey's uh, in Scream 1 with the phone, she has a, um, a cell, like a, sorry, not a cordless phone. phone. It's a, she has a cordless phone. Oh my God, the cordless phone. Mm-hmm. And so she has to be chased. She's able to escape her killer, but since she isn't at, able to escape her killer, he gets her and her mother hears her dying on the, on the landline. And then you see that grow in the Scream 2 where you see the phone, as the phone technology advances, so does being able to screen these calls. Like Sydney knows how to use star six nine. Caller ID, absolutely. Really, caller ID was a big thing. That you know, that ability to hide behind the phone because Ghostface can taunt his victims from a distance, and then he knows that they're isolated. He can watch them from a distance on his cellular phone, see what they're doing, watch their actions. That's terrifying. Every moment in every scene, they ask, "How do you know I'm doing this?" With phones, you should be able to just shut it off. Oh, this creepy guy is bothering me. Click off. Mm-hmm. But you can't. He can't do that. He doesn't allow that. Absolutely not. And there's this interesting note that we were reading about going back to Halloween on the audio commentary. Jamie Lee Curtis. She had pointed to the banality of the telephone, re- referring to it as a quote source of regularity mm-hmm. before it becomes a source of terror. The heavy breathing. That's creepy. But you can you can try calling the cops. If you're in trouble, call somebody for help. But guess what's really common in horror movies? They cut the phone lines immediately, which then itself isolates the character. And you pick up the phone and it's at like dial tone or there's nothing, you know, and that's very isolating. It's very scary. It's taking the the ability away to to call somebody for help. And if you're left alone in the house, that is absolutely terrifying and it takes something that seems so normal and every day and makes it super sinister right and Ghostface has that you know he does he does the stalking he does the voyeurism because there's always two killers right so you have one being able to do the creepy phone calling and then the other one is going to be the one jumping out of the shadows to fucking kill you where you think they're far away but then they're not so there's like this two two kind of element to why it's so effective to have two killers but also extra terrifying and I want to say that when I sat down to think about like weaponizing the phone and it's it's very scary as somebody I've had like the odd crank call the odd like weird heavy breather what's really extra scary about it but I found really interesting that calls are very intimate because their their voice is right next to yours you're holding the phone to your ear or if you have one of those like headpieces it's all right in your ear right It's right Mm -hmm. next to your head. It's in your ear. It's in your brain. It's in your mind, right? Until, you know, they had the invention of the speakerphone, which we see in Scream 4. They just turn, like, the spooky call on in the phone, the the teenage girls, and everybody can hear it. But prior to that, it was all right next to your head. That's You were the only one that could hear what they were saying. You were the one. Like, this, like, weird intimacy of you being the only one hearing what this person has to say. The harassment, the crank calls, the heavy breathing. You know, we see this all and scream especially in the first one that's where this all started where these women are pretty much almost always alone and right up to her ear we have somebody saying he's gonna gut us like a fish yeah, yeah, that's fucking terrifying. Well, especially for young teenage girls watching these films, because the phone at that time was our lifeline. Absolutely. I remember I used to spend <laughs> hours on the phone with my best friend yep. at the time, just hours, just 
chatting away and whenever the phone would ring your parents would be like oh it's this person on the phone again you have to like jump yep. in and, you know yep. that was our lifeline so like the phone provided hours of joy and comfort for us as teenagers even later on as like older you know as with older women when we start chatting with our friends so to have that inherent trust ripped away yes. when you pick up the phone yep. and it's someone heavy breathing or prank calling you like yeah. it's terrifying like I myself now I screen all my calls mm. if someone calls me I'm like Google screen mm-hmm. if I don't you know because that's a terrifying experience that intimacy is taken away and that ability to feel safe talking to your friends and then that's also changed now too like and we'll see this later we see this grow in screen like when the phone goes from you know phoning someone to texting them Mm -hmm. right the girls all communicate via text and stuff like that so when you start getting weird facebook messages or weird chats from weird Mm -hmm. texts from people like who the fuck is this and you're like delete but then they still have your number and they can still you know until you block it and we all know blocking doesn't work Mm -hmm. as it should yeah so obviously with scream and scream 2 when caller id became a thing those sales increased because yes we want to know who's calling us especially those time we a lot of those phones did not have even like caller display oh boy that's gonna be back uh, just color display yeah. <laughs> no star 69 no star 67 yet right to see who was doing your calling or blocking your number right remember that technology but yeah it's, again we're going into scream too this the, how isolating the phone can be but the limitations we see a, a few instances of the limitations and the dangers of cell phones and landlines cc beloved cc our sarah michelle geller in the sorority house she only has a landline and there's a there's like a you can only go so far away from the yes. base of a cordless phone, folks, if you know what those are, for it to be even useful. She is smart. She tries to leave the house and she's on the phone trying to call for help. So she gets out of the house, which is exactly what we all know you're supposed to do. Get out of the house. But she can't reach help if she's not in the house. And it's so devastating, that whole scene, because she does what she's supposed to do. But it gets all staticky and distorted because she's far away from the base of the landline. Yeah. And so she has to go back into the house to actually be able to use it to call for help. But then she's attacked and then it's too late. And then increasing that technology later on, we're going to see in Scream 3 that technology be able to um, replicate someone's voice and use it into the phone to create diversions and to send people everywhere. Like that's another terrifying. Ghostface has now upped his game instead of just like masking his voice. He's now manipulating people by saying like, oh, he's he copied Gail's voice and Dewey's voice. And then, you know, yeah. that's how he's able to get everyone to where he needs to get them. And you're like, you know, and that gets terrifying. And then that get, increases in screen four with you know, yeah, we were talking about texting and cell phone, but now all of a sudden our phones also have video camera on them. So now let's make these murders public, mm-hmm. make it known. Briefly go back to Scream 2 for a second, because this other this other scene stood out to me was when it's Randy, Dewey, and Gale. And unfortunately, this is the Randy death oh. scene, but they get a call on a cell phone. So they keep Randy on the phone to keep the killer on the phone while Dewey and Gail run around to try to look. And there's all these, now it's, you know, early, it's like 2000s. Most, so many people now have phones. It's not, it's less of a status symbol. It's more of like a commonplace thing. So as they're running around, trying to look for people on a cell phone, accosting people, we have now isolated Randy yeah. to be killed by Ghostface. And as soon as they realize, they're like, oh my God, Randy, wait, we've left him alone. It's too late. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The killer's got him. Regardless of how advanced the technology gets, the weapon, uh, the phone isolates everyone and makes you're ready for Ghostface. Absolutely. And Ghostface is, like you said, terrifying. Could be anyone. It's our masked killer that we find in a lot of slasher movies. Hello? 
California Women's Crisis Counseling. My name is Laura. How can I help oh, you? Laura, I do have a crisis. I've killed someone, Laura. Are you listening to me? Huh? Who is this? Just one question. Do you think it's over, Sydney? Do you? Whoever it is, is now taking credit for Marine Prescott's murder. But we know who killed Marine Prescott. Billy Loomis and Stu Marker. I mean, they even told Sydney how they did it. Maybe there is a third killer. Guys, this was about cotton. We are not in any danger. We are not in any danger, says Candy, page 15. is this somebody who killed to know where Sidney Prescott is what do you know about trilogies well I know about movie trilogies that one all bets are off do you want to have this conversation with a polygraph is that a threat detective it's a threat you'll know it was that a threat? Here's how I see it. I've got no house, no bodyguard, no movie, and I'm being stalked. Because someone wants to kill me? No, because someone wants to kill you. So now, starting now, I go where you go. That way, if someone wants to kill me, I'll be with you. And since they really want to kill you, they won't kill me. They'll kill you. Make sense? None. You are dealing with the concluding chapter of a trilogy. One, you got a killer who's going to be superhuman. Number two, anyone including the main character can die. This means you said... Dewey, whoever, um, call me back. I can only hear myself. I only hear you too, Sydney. I am not dreaming. I am not crazy. He was there in Woodsboro. That's not Woodsboro, Sydney. <laughs> Looks like Stab 3 is back in production. You gotta be praying this movie keeps going. So we're now we're going to talk about Ghostface and interesting tidbit. If nobody knew this, you can easily Google it. But an important aspect of what we're going to talk about today is keeping in mind the original story and the original movie of Scream. Okay, Mm -hmm. so Ghostface and based off of, you know, reading interviews with Kevin Williamson, the writer of, of Scream, Ghostface was inspired by Danny Rowling, a.k.a. the Gainesville Ripper, who murdered five students over a four day period in August 1990. So the original Ghostface is based off a true crime story, actual murder who killed people. And that spooked Kevin Williamson and it made him into Ghostface, right? And Ghostface, we have, oh, I was going to say they always had two two killers, but in three, it was always Roman, which is interesting. He needs to get a job. Well, I guess he couldn't work because he started killing people. But, (laughs) you know, you have Billy and Stu working together, the Ms. Loomis and Mickey, and then we have Roman. And then in Scream 4, we have Jill and Charlie. So Ghostface as a killer, he's scary because he can one-up us. (laughs) He's aware. He's aware of the horror tropes. He's aware of how he can weaponize pop culture against us. And often we have to see our our victims, uh, Sydney and Dewey and Gail and even Randy, have to constantly go back to these horror tropes and get this knowledge. They even go to like Mm -hmm. Kirby and the cinema club to like figure out the the remake. How how does this this killer now? Yeah. Yeah. And so Ghostface is he's brilliant in that way. And it's just like a constant direct commentary about the various things that interest us in society in the sense of like I love how in Scream 2 when we get Ghostface as a killer it's Mrs. Loomis and Mike Mickey 
and they're infamous because they want to be copycat killers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that's how Ghostface becomes even larger, right? You know, mm-hmm. before you just had him as this, like, this regular, like, disgruntled serial killer, then he's, oh, now we got copycat killers. Yeah. Oh, and then in Scream 3, we get Roman, who represents the seedy underbelly of Hollywood, but he's the director. He is the mastermind behind mm-hmm. it all. He's the one who put the idea and Stu in Billy's mind and just as a director directed mm-hmm. his debut, right? Mm-hmm. Which is to me when I was watching that again because everything his whole thing is about revenge, mm-hmm. revenge against women who thinks that they should be doing better. And I'm like, "Oh my god, this is just the Hollywood system and the yeah. whole misogyny, right?" You know, because <laughs> yep. you read a whole thing about how Roman is representative of Ghostface yep. of misogyny Absolutely. and you know, we saw it earlier on the Scream franchise in the very original, like misogyny is very parent throughout that but Roman is the director mm-hmm. he he makes the cues and then we'll get like you said in, in Scream 4 it's all about social media and internet fame like Jill's like mm-hmm. oh I can become famous based on, on this because of what it's really what's it what's it originally based off of yeah absolutely and just to point out like Roman is lame yes. like I understand that he is the person that really started the the ball rolling going back to the original but he is a fucking boohoo story and yes, he's yes. disgusting and I'm going to say this and it's terrible but if, when I rewatched Scream 3 it really stood out to me of how disgusting he is. He says about Maureen Prescott that they fucked her three ways to Sunday which made her a slut. I'm like yikes Roman. Do you remember that? Yeah. No. And so it's so absolutely terrible but that's just like that's how he thinks right? And I feel like him and Billy would have made really great fucking friends because oh, holy he crap. Would have. Oh 100% <laughs> right away. He blames women for his life but yep. at the same time like he blamed Maureen. Yep. She rejected him not understanding what she went through and yep. stuff like that and now he's like oh well Sydney I'm gonna make Sydney pay. Yeah. I don't even know know this girl nope. I don't even know nope. her I'm gonna make her pay well your life doesn't seem so bad dude like yeah you're you know and making even a if Hollywood you have a picture shitty, I think you're fine yeah I think you're fine <laughs> you're a Hollywood okay. director you've made other films other than stab yep. like you were doing fine just because the woman who gave you up for adoption did not want to be in your life anymore you got mad about it and decide well guess what you reject me I'm gonna get you murdered I'm gonna have all these terrible things happen to you and carry on for your daughter yeah like <laughs> get no. a life Get some therapy. Absolutely. And even though he enrages me and I think he's lame and he's kind of interesting, yes, I would say out of all our ghost faces, we call them ghost faces, um, I think the most interesting one or I guess the least, like the most um, relatable in the sense because of our age and like the era that it came out in is Jill. Like Scream for is and I didn't really even even when I first watched Scream 4 I didn't think she was as interesting as now after like re-watching it and reading and researching and just like spending some time with Jill holy moly mm-hmm. yeah she is pretty much the most horrifying one in Scream 4 it's a tale told during the age of the internet live streaming cell phones everything is online now absolutely and I kind of part of me kind of loves when like Gail and Dewey and, and Sydney are just like the internet it's like old person <laughs> Facebook. I just love the young kids, young, you know, the high schoolers are like teaching Gail all this stuff. Like, what's live streaming? Like, what is this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm just like, mm, yes. I'm like, we're, we're like this now. Exactly. What, what is the TikTok? It's very <laughs> endearing. But really what was pointed to me and really stood out to me is that Dewey says early on in Scream 4, one generation's tragedy is one other's joke. Okay, the teenagers at this new Woodsboro High and they're obsessed with the original story, the original massacre to them because they're young. They're they're teenagers. It happened so long ago. It's not scary to them. And it's their only claim to fame in this, quote, boring little town that they have. And they are obsessed with it. Scream, folks. 
Scream the movie is actually, it's based on true crime. These are real mm-hmm. live murders that these people are obsessed with. And so when these teens keep doing these annual stab marathons, which the stab movies are based on the original murders, are based on true crime and almost brings it to like a parody level, which is disgusting. The OG characters think it's distasteful. Obviously, they lived it. They were lucky to survive with as few physical scars that they have. Yeah, so I noticed that right away when we were watching when I was watching Scream 4 the other day and watching their stab marathon and I was just like okay so this whole idea like they're obsessed with a horror franchise they're like we're obsessed with the stab franchise but yeah. then you're like but no but you're really obsessed with the true crime element that is a part of the stab franchise like it's very clear they mentioned really early on in the movie that sydney after the third movie the, the stab three or whatever mm-hmm. like that she sued the the cinemas to say like stop making movies like stop yeah. using my story for your movies and stuff like that she threatened to sue them yeah, and then they right. just started to get crazy and go into time travel like kind of like yeah. a friday the 13th type situation because really yeah those first three movies are a story of a, of a, of a victim's tragedy, of something mm-hmm. so horrendous that happened to her and continue to happen to her, not just with her first killers, but a copycat killer and mm-hmm. then someone who just purely just wanted her dead. That is true crime. That mm-hmm. is something that's truly, a woman has truly experienced these moments of terror, but people started to profit off of it because it was interesting and because yeah. we have this obsession with true crime. Absolutely. And with this revelation that we've had, and it might sound strange to you folks, but like, let's think back to, there's a difference between being obsessed with a horror movie franchise, Nightmare on Elm Street, not based on anybody real. It's Friday the 13th, not actually based on real events. It would be like me, like somebody being obsessed with and like championing Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, which is based loosely off an actual serial killer. Great film, but I recognize that it's not great, yay, because the people really died. But so in Scream 1, it deals with, it's all about like horror movie references, Psycho, you know, Norman Bates, and just talking about, you know, Michael Myers and, and stuff like that. It's fictional. We're talking about fictional killers. It's fun. It's cheeky. Right? Yeah. Scream 2 brings in the real killers. And Randy yeah. scoffs at the killer on the phone before he dies for using Billy and Stu as role models. He's like, why don't you, what about Dahmer? Why don't you do like Bundy? Like, why don't you use other serial killers that are quote, more interesting, quote unquote, more interesting. Billy and Stu were <laughs> pansy ass motherfuckers, as Sydney had said, you know? And this is why it's relevant. And then we see that in Scream 4. But these movies are kind of like, they have the hallmarks of, I would say, classic true crime. We have our ambitious investigator, our overzealous prosecutor. We maybe have less of that, but, and the family that would not let the case be forgotten. I think a lot of that stems and comes into fruition through the character of Gail. Yes, yeah. Absolutely. Like, she is the one that, you know, she may not be a lawyer, and there's always some kind of lawyer, you know, or a head cop in all of this uh, in true crime, but she is the one that's like, oh, I, we have to right some wrongs. We need to really further look at this because the cops aren't doing a great job. They never do a great job. Guess yeah. who helps? The not cop characters. She feels that justice was was misserved when it came to Khan's case. And she's like, no, if things aren't adding up here. Once again, you see in Scream 2, she becomes famous from that. She, you know, she's able to, she has a book, but then we, but these books are on these murders, this, the this, murders. these this yep. true, the murders that happened. The true crime true book crime she wrote. Ele- the, yeah, she, she literally wrote a true crime book that became a movie. Absolutely. And uh, during our research, we it went to some really interesting, dark places. That's kind yeah. of our stick. <laughs> <laughs> 
But it came across this aspect of who is seen as a sympathetic victim, Mm, what is seen as a crime, and really the whiteness of true crime. Because again, I brought up earlier in the episode that these films are very white, white oriented, and true crime, what's popular anyways, is very white. And yeah. this this writer, this man of color, Wesley Lowry, he wrote about a true crime story about a long unsolved lynching of a black man in Georgia. And he was talking about how most true crime focuses on white police officers and detectives, white victims and white prosecutors working to avenge them. And it's aimed at a, quote, presumed white audience. But he was saying that he believes that this is really a judgment about what constitutes a sympathetic victim. And guess who's a sympathetic victim? The white woman. Yes. And it's so interesting because I noticed too in this article, he really talks about like the 90s and how I feel like true crime, like I think people have always been interested in true crime. Like as, as humans, we're always seem to be interested in the macabre and like the, mm-hmm. you know, the terrible stories. But really noticing that true crime, I feel really amped up in the 90s mm. because we got a different type of true crime. We got partner violence. We got violence against children and sexual assault. All of a sudden, the private sphere was being made public mm. and it was being made public for women. The private sphere is the female domain that is our domain and terrible things tend to happen in the do- that domain but all of a sudden now is becoming publicized and the biggest audience for these true crimes these you know white are white are like you know middle-aged white women and and scream is a prime example of that because we see that sydney is a victim of partner violence and assault and so was her mother and that story carries on throughout you know and we see her journey throughout the film but that's what makes it interesting but then the people are also very interested in the killers and why they're doing it they need to figure out they'd mm-hmm. like to play armchair detective and be like well why would this person do this thing why would they do this yeah it's almost like some stories are more valued than others yeah so somebody is in charge of the news right they're the one choosing what is worthy of putting in the news writing about and stuff like that and what ends up happening is that it influences us that are watching and reading the news what is seen as a crime yeah it might be a symptom of a much larger problem According to the FBI, the majority of homicide victims are men killed by other men, actually. Yeah. Um, and the race of serial murderers is actually in proportion with the racial makeup of the U.S. as a whole. So there's a bias. There's an absolute bias in reporting crime, what constitutes a crime, and everything else. And looking at true crime, those stories usually explore things that we are absolutely fascinated by. Of course, betrayal, revenge, uh, hypocrisy, justice, and injustice. And it's I literally have seen it this week, what's been happening, and it's disgusting, but the whole missing white woman syndrome. Yeah. And we see that. The idea that the news media gives disproportionate coverage to victims who are middle class, attractive, white women, ideally mothers or college student, because how tragic is that to hear about this? You know, and I literally and I'm sorry I didn't grab anybody's names because I was really just looking at it today. But it's happened this week. That young, white, pretty girl went missing in the same area that many indigenous black women go missing. Guess who we hear about? Exactly. You know, the people who are most risk at violence are usually young black men, trans women, sex workers, indigenous women, very particularly, especially in Canada, people struggling with addiction and the homeless. Their stories are very rarely told. Mm -hmm. They have like the the worst things happen to them. But the most heinous crimes that we always tend to hear about are 48% of the women are in domestic homicide situations. I'm pretty sure with Gabby, 
she it was, it was her boyfriend oh, probably. she was in an abusive situation and she couldn't get out and people were like why didn't no one say anything <laughs> so one of the things that I picked up in this article as well and I thought was really frustrating is we see that they're like oh you know people are interested in true crime especially particularly white women are interested in true crime because they're using it as a means of learning survival tips and strategies mm-hmm. but this is a new way of be getting women to defend and protect themselves in a world that is just unkind to them, right? So we turn to true crime books to learn about another murderer and his victims, thereby increasing our awareness and fears of crime, but also learning the abilities to take care and protect ourselves. And we're like, well, wait, let's just not teach men not to kill. Mm-hmm. Let's just teach men not to beat their wives when they don't get something they, they yes. want, right? You know, And also, let's also be more accurate in the crimes that are being committed and show a more of a fair representation mm-hmm. of, because yes, white women are in danger of, of being in part of domestic situations, but so are black women. Mm-hmm. And in worse situations, than, but we never hear these stories because it's not publicized in an infamous way. So there's this like marked, there's this preference for victims that can be seen, quote, as innocent. And this will become, folks, stick with us. It'll be very important when we talk about our ghost face killer, <laughs> our killer, Jill, predominantly, like Jill is the mastermind in that situation later on, because this is hugely important because she is the epitome of what would be considered the ultimate innocent, sympathetic victim, this young, rich, white girl. Yep, this middle-class girl. She happens to survive. She beats out the killer. She makes it in the end, but she's orchestrated all along. She didn't learn about how to survive uh, survive this plan through a horror movie. She learned how to survive this plan through reading true crime and probably learning her aunt's story. She learned yep. how to survive. She watched yep. how the media turned Sydney into this, oh, this poor white woman. She's a hero. She was able to get over so it. So brave. And not once, not once did Sydney ever want any of that. Nope. She, I remember noting it down in the second movie, you know, when she defeats Mickey and, and Miss Loomis and stuff like that. And they're like, Sydney, you're a hero. What do you think? She's like, I'm not a hero. Go talk to Cotton. Like, she's like, I don't yeah. want anything to do with this. She doesn't this. want anything want to, be- to do with this. She's tired of she's, this shit. Absolutely. Yeah, she's like, I just want to be left alone. I just want to have my life. I don't want to be famous for this. And she tries to explain that to Jill. She's like, I don't want people look. She's like, you know, I don't realize that people look at me. I didn't realize I was famous. I never asked for this. Yeah. And even when she says, like, at the end with her book, she's like, with her publicist, she's like, I never wanted this. Yeah. Like, this is it. I told my story yeah. so that other women could help find the strength and the freedom to be able to look after themselves and take care yep. of themselves and get themselves out of dark places like PTSD yep. and identity crisis and stuff like that. She's like, I just want to. And they're like, well, no. Yeah. You, this is everyone wants to know this. Like, you're the you're, you're the next best thing. Like, you're you're yep. surviving the killer. This doesn't happen very often. We need to hear your story. And so Jill gets in her mind. This is the way to fame. Being that, yep. you know, that little white woman who survived the killer and who survived in the end. And as we come kind of full circle here, in a sense, Sydney's book is based off a true crime story. And that was her own. That she lived through an actual, quote, true crime situation, folks. This is what this Mm. all stems from. It's true crime. Absolutely. Yeah. And the media does what it always does. It makes celebrity monsters yes. in the media. So Ghostface becomes famous. Movies are based off of him. We get costumes. We get all kinds of decorations. You know, he's the next Zodiac killer. He's the next Son of Sam. You know, these are me- these were, these were actual serial killers who were obsessed with becoming famous. Mm-hmm. And they created their own monikers. And that's what we see with uh, Mickey. Not with Nessie, with Loomis. Mrs. Loomis and Roman just want revenge. 
Ridge. Mickey, Charlie, and Jill all want to be famous. Yeah. They want to they want to see their names out there, and they want to gain those groupies. They want to become the center of the public's fascination, even if it's for like 15 minutes of fame, or maybe for infamy. Infamy, like you know, murder is seen as exotic and bizarre and grisly and disturbing, and the public is interested in it. Yeah, we love murder. We do comes down to it we want to hear about murder disgusting abject things yeah it's this morbid fascination of With you death. know these the behaviors uh, yeah of death Not and of these too. serial killers why would people want to do this yeah so there are a lot of people in this franchise that actually benefit from those original murders whether yeah. they explicitly say it or not or really understand it themselves, but many people benefit from those murders. So, I mean, Dewey, God bless his soul, (laughs) he's so sweet, but he benefits from those murders. He gets to be a technical advisor on the Stab movie. So in Scream 3, he gets to be a technical advisor because he was there, he lived it, so he can let everybody know the grim details. Great. But that's a kind of a fun new job for him to do. He agreed to it. I mean, it's great to have a cop on there, but you know, that's that's kind of an interesting thing for, for that to happen to him. Also become sheriff later. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure yeah. that helps. Promotion. Yep. Job promotion. Um, Cotton Weary. Oh my God. Starting <sighs> oh in Scream 2 because Sydney passed the reins over to him because she had zero interest in becoming famous on this because she's literally trying to survive at every moment. Because by yep. the end of Scream 2, huh, at least this time it wasn't her boyfriend trying to kill her. A friend? You know? old partner's mom like friends family everyone's being killed around her nope she doesn't want anything to do with this but cotton he was already throughout scream 2 wanting that 15 minutes fame i want that diane sawyer that's it diane sawyer interview get me on dateline i want my i want my fame so and especially he had his false accusation right so that's huge in his kind of story his journey of fame so he got it so you get into scream 3 he wants a cameo in the stab movie he deserves it right he has his own talk show playing in the background we don't see that much of it but it's called 100 cotton where he interviews killers or like not so great people like criminals and then have them face their victims which is what they tried to do in scream 2 which is awful though we know cotton didn't kill city's mom and she knows this it's like boom let's have this interview absolutely not no no so cotton's also benefiting from this mickey absolutely he was all in the in on this because he wanted to have he wanted to be immortalized by this epic courtroom trial and drama where he can blame the movies for him causing to kill and then he'd be all over the media he would get his fame and fortune right he would be the yeah he would be the right wing's martyr he was gonna exactly just what the american right wing needs they need to they need to have that belief that tipper gore needs to know that these things do make us violent yes so, yeah you know, yeah I'm gonna be he's the... using satanic panic <laughs> yeah 100 percent. but yeah. with horror movies right yeah, and saying absolutely. like yeah no you guys are right horror movies make me a killer that I'm was a, a killer. big thing but in he, the 90s yep yeah and become yep so he's a copycat killer and that's what makes him famous absolutely and i was reading that on the dvd commentary for scream 2 wes craven even said that mickey was the reason that sydney went into hiding during the events of scream 3 because he messed with her head so much right yes he did this you is mickey random psychopath that ms loomis found on the internet the net at that time, who tracked Sydney down, became her friend for God knows how long, maybe a year or so, and then kills her best friend and her boyfriend, right? That's messed up. I would go into hiding too. In Scream 3, Sydney doesn't want to exist. I get that. Mickey and that whole situation drove her into hiding because 
everyone's who you can't trust anyone obviously yeah but then you have people who still want to profit off of her story right yeah. and they're creating the movies we're into the hollywood setting right and all those i don't remember all the actresses but those are the main actress who was like this would have been a role of a lifetime yeah. for me but yes, you know and here i am yep. but and like and it's such an awkward scene in the bathroom because she's talking to sydney she's like this is such a this is so great to meet you and so she's awkward. like this i would have done you justice i'm like this is weird yeah like this shouldn't even exist, this movie. Yeah. You, why would you want to portray me fearing for my life and almost dying and then finding and having all these terrible things happening? No, nope. that's just... But, you know, their careers are built off of this story. Absolutely. Speaking of careers, briefly I had to mention the absolute sociopath, which is Alison Brie's character, Rebecca, in Scream oh, 4, yes. Sydney's publicist. Whew. She is like our updated version of Gail, but who is an actual literal sociopath. She wants Sydney to, quote, use her victimhood. She's cold, she's calculating, and absolutely heartless. I don't think Gail was a sociopath. She has an arc. We'll talk about Gail. And she admits to feeling bad in Scream 2. There are limits to Gail's ruthlessness, right? They all wanted fame. Like we said, Sydney doesn't. But... I'm gonna throw this out there. Sydney will still get some fame and notoriety because she wrote the book about her experience. And it kind of shows us that nothing is totally altruistic. Yes, that is true. Yeah, at the end of the day, like she did write a book and maybe that was a way of closing the chapter and totally. allowing herself to reinvent herself. Like maybe that was like her, you know, like purging. It. I'm purging it. I get it's it. out in the book. She, but you're right. It's not completely altruistic. Like she could just com- completely walked away and never came back to it again. But like, yeah, Rebecca is gross. <laughs> oh, yeah. Rebecca's like, the bodies are piling up. This is amazing. Yeah, this is better than yeah. I would have thought. I'm like, uh, three uh, teenagers just died. Yep. Yeah. Like innocent people just died. And you're, <laughs> yeah. you're coming out and you're building this career on it. Whisper Massacre anniversary question. What is your favorite scary movie? What's your favorite scary movie? One generation's tragedy is the next one's a joke. What is your favorite scary movie, man? I'll show you. This week marks the anniversary of the infamous Woodsboro murders. Local celebrity victim Sydney Prescott chose to return to her hometown. Welcome home, Sydney. Watch the preview of coming events. What do you want? Who is this? He's trying to do ghost face. I'm standing in the closet. Liar. Dewey! What's going on? It is not public information. It's all over the internet. It is? They're patterning his murders after the original movie. It's time for someone new to die. The unexpected is the new cliche, and virgins can die now. Does that mean that I'm not gonna live as long as these two? Clearly. To be the new version, the killer should be filming the murders. Gail! Gail behind you! Go ahead if you have the guts. Not to implicate him. You can't kill Sydney. She's victim royalty. Not true. Sid's expendable. Point taken. Guaranteed third act main cast bloodbath. Fingers crossed on some nudity for a change. Time for your last question. Name the remake of the groundbreaking... Halloween, Texas Chainsaw, Dawn of the Dead, The Hills Have Heights, Amityville Horror, Black Christmas, House of Wax, Pop Night, Black Bloody Valentine. It's 
right? None of the above. I'll be right back. I know this one. You're not supposed to say that, are you? You should have seen the look on your face. It was interesting talking about the notoriety of, of Ghostface and getting into his story and how he grows. But then there was also this parallel story of yeah. Gail Weathers yeah. and oh, her Gail. journey, right? Of how originally she was just out to solve the case of Maureen Prescott's murder. Yeah. Right you know, the she felt that there, yeah. She wanted to right the wrong. She felt that there was evidence missing, that things weren't adding up, yep. and she just wanted to get Cotton Weary out of jail. But then she happens to stumble upon this bigger plot, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And she's an investigative reporter, and yeah. for a woman back in the 90s to really get into the investigative reporter scene or to actually be taken ter- taken seriously, you need to do some kind of shifty things to get yourself known. Yeah. And yeah. she wrote the book. She literally wrote the book on the Woodsboro's murders. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And the, that becomes her claim to fame in Scream 2. Yeah. And I think that's so interesting because you can already tell that she struggles with it. Like, she's got her 15 minutes of fame, but she knows she has to keep doing more things to keep that fame going. Keep the momentum up. Yep, absolutely. It will will come and go, right? So she's trying to keep that momentum going, but you can tell that she doesn't feel great, that she's profited off of this. Like, she's built some, you know, she even, like, wants to, like, she feels bad at how she describes Mm -hmm. doing. She's just like, you know, I, I don't feel great about this. You mentioned earlier, it's like, the killers who become famous, but then there's those people that make them famous. Like, yes. even though Gail was trying to right the wrong, there was this spotlight on Woodsboro, spotlight on these murders, because these murders in Scream prove that Cotton Weary was innocent. And that's fantastic. That is fantastic that this man didn't have to die because of this whole situation, right? Absolutely. Innocent people yeah. should not be in jail and should not be killed, right? Okay. But put a spotlight on this situation and amplified it and elevated it and put it, like I said, in the spotlight to make it even bigger than before, which then in turns makes her bigger than before. And you you think too, like when you're watching it, like it's not about Sydney's journey. Like we don't see like, oh, like the writing of wrongs, right? Like you could make a, like she could have wrote a book and the Woodsboro's murders could have become like a a new drama of like, oh, when like how an innocent man almost got into jail or like, you know, or how a survivor, you know, writes a wrong. No, it becomes a horror franchise because they're not focusing on Sydney or Cotton Weary's story yeah. and Maureen Prescott's story. They're focusing on Ghostface. So they're focusing on Stu and Billy, our psychopaths, yeah. our murderers. Absolutely. Even when you watch the second movie, when they're watching the, that super secret premiere, all it is is people running around in Ghostface masks. They're like, Ghostface, you know, and it makes the murders and not realizing that, oh, wait, no, this is actually like a legit, this is based off a real story. And I know how like sometimes we all feel very uncomfortable when we realize that, like Texas yeah. Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. We know that there's some yeah. true elements based on it. You're like, oh, this makes it feel really gritty yeah. and you're right. But like this fame around Ghostface come, but it's not around Sydney or Cotton yeah. Weir or their story or anything. And yeah, like you said, Gail becomes bigger because of that, but you can tell that she does not like her association with it. Like, yeah. It's very present in screen. Dream three. She is like, uh, like you can just tell it. She's just like, I, I didn't mean yeah. for all this to happen. I did not mean for Hollywood to get its grubby hands on this and make it something dirty. Yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of you're kind of leading into the point of like what I wrote about in this piece coming up for Horror Homeroom. But slasher movies are not 
like final girl or survivor driven narratives. It's killer driven narratives. And, and I think that her book helped keep that going. And that's definitely what the stab franchise does. That's not what the scream franchise does. No, yes. absolutely not. And that's why off topic a little bit, but that's why it's so absolutely wonderful. It is that it is a survivor driven narrative and not a ghost face killer narrative. We know, mm. we know ghost face, we know the killers, but also we know all the other characters. And that's different than going back to a lot, almost all other slashers, but you know, going beyond our big franchises, yeah. right? Absolutely. Well, you're, you're watching these, these characters in the Scream franchise go through the experience of what it's like to come out of something like that. What it's like when, when Hollywood, do, when the media does get, get its, uh, grabs its talons onto it, makes it bigger than it needs to be. When Hollywood Hollywoodizes it, when people all of a sudden decide they want to replicate it yeah. and make it, you know, and, yeah. and make it all, make it all happen again so they can become famous. Like this constant cycle of infamy that comes with actual deaths of real people. And we often focus on the killers. We focus yep. on the serial killers. We don't focus on the victims or the survivors who've made it through and the people who end up kind of like oh I realize I did write the book on this but I feel really bad about it and like Gail's yeah. trying to reinvent herself in the fourth one she's Absolutely. like I'm only helping because people are dying and because I know yep. how this killer thinks and Absolutely. how to help but she's like I don't want to make this famous again I don't want to yeah. I don't want another movie to come from all this I just generally want to help someone so you see this journey of these characters coming to terms with how they've been involved in like the popularity and the notoriety of this franchise of the stab series of this killer like Gail wanted her fame I get that she's very career oriented she wanted to make a name for herself but she does get it on the backs of dead people same with Jill later on that we'll talk about but we see Gail have that struggle because she gets an arc she has compassion Gail wants to move away from her kind of quote exploitation roots and wants to do something more genuine that's why we see her writer's block in Scream 4 because I think she's trying to write like a fictional story like she struggles with like she her claim to fame was based off true crime and grim dark stories but that's what drives the media so it's hard for her to move away from that but she mm-hmm. also but she also knows that she needs to play to her strengths right and so in Scream 4 she says it's like this is what I'm good at which is solving crimes and getting involved right because yeah. she is smart she asks the hard questions she is kind of ruthless and she'll get in there to get what needs to be done she's trying to get away from you know or trying to make the best of a situation that that it is but she knows that fucking murder sells essentially yeah I love exactly. Gail. I love Gail. Like she's such an interesting, nuanced character that we don't often get. And she's often looked over for Sydney Prescott, which I think Sydney is also a fantastic, wonderful character with a great arc and a wonderful story. But I think Gail's story also deserves to be told. I agree with that. Gail, I even would argue that Dewey's story oh, needs to be Dewey. told as well. Like yep. He's got yep. an interesting arc that comes up, like being, you know, criticized by his sister and being, you know, talked down to, to just trying to do the best that he can by everyone who's in this, this terrible situation, right? All right. Our big, our big nasty, our big baddie, Jill. So she absolutely wants notoriety and claim to fame. And she's not afraid to tell everyone all about it at the end of Scream 4, right? Oh, yeah. She's obsessed and jealous with about Sydney's victimhood, her trauma. She's obsessed with killers that are, you know, then the massacre that was in her town. She's jealous of Sydney, equating her victimhood with some kind of morbid celebrity status. She says, I don't need friends. I need fans. 
Yeah, that whole idea, the youth obsession with internet and fame, combining it with true crime. What she's doing is she's getting closer and closer to that victim exploitation. Yep. She knows that she's going to get something out of this. She's going to get more fans. She's going to be posted all over the media yep. as the sole survivor, another cute little white girl from a small town. The media's, and she even says the, the media Sydney. will eat it up. Yeah. The next Sydney. She's like, she knows that she can get away with this because of her white privilege, because she can capitalize on the fact of how graphic the content is. No one will believe that she actually was the mastermind nope, behind this, especially not. when she, yeah, makes it, oh, it's so interesting, because what she ends up doing, too, is she tries to actually make Trevor, the guy that she breaks up with, into the next Billy Loomis. Yeah. But, like, he's not. He's no. not Billy. He's actually a nice guy. He was just a did dummy who yeah. just, yeah. you know, he went and slept with another girl, and he was just a teenager. He was, yeah. he was a teenage boy. Yep. He was not a Billy Loomis, but she does things like climbing in her window and that whole scene where like Sydney sees that and she's like oh wait yeah right and, you, yeah. and I, when you know that Jill is the killer and you watch the movie again yeah. you can tell like oh Jill knew that do that on purpose I bet you she started training him to come in through her window to make it like that like because she really wants to be the next Sydney yeah she makes it look like that Trevor's harassing her Trevor's stalking her and he's abusive like at the yeah. end of the movie where like ripping out her hair and scratching her face like she would make yep. it like yeah he was domestically violent towards me and was sending me messages and she was trying to make him into the next Billy and she knew that people would eat it up because she's the victim. It's much she's much more easy to believe and you know Jill thought Sydney was so special. Sydney's mm. just like I am not special. You <laughs> have right? she has Jill literally has no idea what it's like to be Sydney. She sees what the media is telling her to see, not what it cuz she all says multiple times that she doesn't have a relationship with Sydney. They don't talk. They're not close. They're kind of estranged family members cuz Sydney's probably just trying to get away. Guess what? Her family always dies. Thankfully, her father has not, but like her family and friends and partners and lovers, they all die. So I would see why, and I would understand why she was having any kind of distance with family and Woodsboro as a whole. But Jill is a lonely, bored, privileged, rich, white girl, right? So she's, she's the, like you said, and we talked about is that Jill is the type of victim that true crime loves to talk about. And this whole franchise is based off of true crime. She's a cute little white girl from a small town. And again, this franchise is very white. So this all fits very perfectly within this entire frame. So that we see this as, again, that problem with the true crime community as a whole, or at least as we see it. Because mm-hmm. again, how we see true crime community is how it's it's marketed towards, right? Because there are subsets of the true crime community that are people of color, indigenous, and all of those other folks that are interested. They just want to see more, more diverse stories, of course, right? But it's often white women that are obsessed and romanticize serial killer. They fantasize it because they've never actually lived it. They can think about this terrible stuff because they haven't lived it. And Jill absolutely has not lived it. Absolutely not. No. Well, she always talks about, she's like, well, I lived in your shadow, right? She's like, never, like, not once did she ever, did she ever reach out to her aunt to like, how are you doing? Or, you know, find out. Like, she doesn't even talk to her own mother. Like, I really like that one scene where they're talking about Sydney's scars. Like, imagine the scars are about, and her mother's like, I have scars too. She was my sister. Like, I, absolutely, that's emotional scars. Sister, folks. Like, no one no one speaks to her and what she's gone <sighs> through and how she's felt about it and I remember thinking really weird at the end yeah. when her, uh, I don't know who stabs her mother if it's Jill or Charlie that ends up killing her mother but she says to Sydney tell Jill I'm sorry why why are you telling your daughter that you're sorry is there something that you feel like you failed in her or 
I don't know. I just mm. remember thinking that was a really weird statement. And for me, I'm like, mm, this, this, Kevin Williamson doesn't put something in a script nope. and doesn't have it come back later. So like, yeah. I feel like, yeah. you yeah. know, we may see something like that later. But I thought that was just really interesting. And because it plays on our fears, right? So I remember being a huge true crime fan. Mm. Like, that was me in my early 20s. I was, like, obsessed <laughs> with, like, true crime, yeah. finding out about, you know, different killers and, you know, different things we do. But I noticed that it would fuel my anxiety and make that things makes a worse. a lot of and, sense. Yeah. <laughs> and in this article that we had read earlier, I, I want to touch back about when I was talking about the whiteness of true crime and mm-hmm. why it's directed towards, you know, younger white women and stuff like that. These uh, crimes is it creates like this vicious cycle. A woman fears becoming a victim of a crime. So consciously or unconsciously, she turns to true crime books in a possible effort to learn strategies and techniques to prevent becoming murdered. However, with each true crime book she reads, the woman learns about another murder and his victims, thereby increasing her awareness and fear of crime. Mm-hmm. And that is kind of what Jill is using. She is using that ability that us going back and wanting to know more and stuff like that to her advantage to the ability to be able to have that infamy right yeah because we'll always we'll always keep going back and we'll always be remembered and which is interesting that she goes the survivor route because when we really think about it it's not the survivors that are remembered it no. is the killers right yeah. so when at the end of the day when they find out that she's really a killer like yeah she's now got her infamy she masterminded this whole thing the whole time but she went. She goes to write a survivor because in this in the series, and maybe that's like a commentary on the screen franchise. Like, well, we should really be hearing the names of the survivors and what they went through from these horrific experiences, and not not remember the face, the ghost faces, right? But she wants the sympathy. Yes, they, she wants yes. the sympathy. The killer doesn't get. They get the infamy, but they don't get the sympathy. She mm. wants the sympathy. She wants to be fawned over. She wants to be special. You'd be special if you're a killer, but then people don't like you. She also wants yeah. that aspect of it, right? She wants fans. Even though there's weirdos that do really, like, are fans of killers and serial killers, and that's this whole other weird thing with women and marrying serial killers in jail, that's fine. Um, but she wants fans, not friends. But here's my question, and I will I could probably answer this really easily myself. Are we fans of the... Do we have the sympathy for the victims? Are we fans? I can't think of a single woman who's been through a terrific experience and survived from a serial killer that I can remember her name. We always remember the dead ones. Absolutely, because almost nobody survives. That's the thing. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. that's the thing. Yeah, Yeah, Jill's not all there. Her plan doesn't all make sense, but at the same... Very narrow, narrow-minded. She's got a narrow view, (laughs) narrow-sightedness. Yeah. (laughs) So the, uh, the last thing we really wanted to, like, delve into is, like... Why? Why do these killers want fame? Why did Mickey want to be famous? Why does Jill want this notoriety and this fame? So our killers that there are the odd killers and serial killers that did desire to be famous. Most of them do not, but there are the handful that did desire to be famous. They're narcissistic predators narcissistic Jill. So they can manipulate the press. They want to promote their own image. They want to create panic and fear among people. There's like a self-gratification of becoming famous. It will show that they are superior and they're way more intelligent than society, police, and government. They can control and manipulate the police, the press, it's a grandiosity of it. They're just like, well, look at all these people. I was a nobody before, and now everybody is taking notice of me. I am the yeah. night stalker. I worship Satan. I'm crawl. This is Richard Ramirez. I'm coming yeah. into your homes in the middle of the night and raping and murdering you. You better fear me. We're like, yikes. <laughs> yikes. <laughs> but they want, they're predators. They want this infamy. There is this, and how they get it, how they get it, which we kind of touched on, 
besides our reporters and the news and everyone giving them the notoriety because they're the ones talking about them. But our, we, we as a public, as a society, we have a fascination with killers and serial killers, mass murderers, because there's this, we have this fixation on calamity and macabre and the violence and serial killers, which, hey, serial killers are three and more murders. So the folks in the Scream franchise, Ghostface is a serial killer. Each movie, they're a serial killer, folks. They're so extreme in their brutality and like psychologically, it's really messed up to us, but they seem so unnatural and strange that it makes us absolutely fascinated by them. Well, they also become like, and the serial killers become the monsters of the adult world. And they can blend effectively into society for long periods of times. They can pop up and go like, no one knows anything. They can be your husband, folks. Right? Right? (laughs) We all have seen the Unsolved Mysteries. (laughs) Um, But like the Zodiac Killer, he was around for a while and all of a sudden gone. Right? Turkish is fearing us that they can exist and they can be anywhere and they can be anything. And when we watch them, we become interested in them and become curious about them. But we always do this from a safe and controlled environment. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? And it gives us that thrill of also playing armchair detective. And we kind of see that with, like, Gail Weathers. Like, you know, she's being an investigative reporter, but she's also being a detective. And she yeah. sure, really shouldn't be doing that, right? Yeah. But we see that. We see that now. We see people doing that on the internet and on podcasts, right? Bringing up these yeah. old crimes and trying to, like, play detective. Yeah. They're, but they're just giving that serial killer more notoriety. We're giving it more public attention. We're giving it what they want. Like, people still bringing up the Zodiac Killer. He's probably, like, awesome. You're still talking about me 50 years later or whatever, a long time ago. And so coming back to notoriety, and this is really, really important. There's like a whole movement about this. It's nonotoriety.com. And so this movement, and it's amazing because it's also deeply important to the aspect of this franchise, but particularly Scream 4 with Jill. So this no notoriety, they want to remove the names of murderers and mass murderers and focus on the victims. The more the killer's photo and the name is out, the more attention they will get. And that's what we don't want. We don't want Mm. killer-driven narratives. We want survivor or victims those that have been killed by these killers, we want their names to be known. So this is all about no notoriety. So the the, the media driven, and it's so incredibly bad now, like back in the 90s, we really just had like news stations. This is pre-internet or early internet. We didn't really have that. And like you said, podcasts, blogs, vlogs, YouTube, anyone could do anything at any point and they have their own opinions and the armchair activists, which sometimes is helpful, often not. If you watch the Eliza Lamb story about media, the internet sleuths, it's awful, you know? And so media-driven infamy can be removed. These folks, one of their statements and their beliefs is that media-driven infamy can be removed with little or no negative impact on society. This only requires the media to place the matter of public safety as a priority. No notoriety calls on the media to eliminate the gratuitous use of the name and likeness of rampage mass killers and shift the focus to the victims, heroes, and survivors. These really came up around the time um, in the U.S. around the mass shootings. So a lot of times it was to really to minim- like to start to minimize the harm of these mass shootings that were coming up because they were seeing these as motivational, like a motivational factor for individuals to commit rampage mass murder to yeah. alleviate themselves to a level that they can they they can't achieve. Like they uh, this is from their website to uh, achieve in a normal fashion through their everyday life. So instead yeah. of, like and well, like we said, Jill even says this, you want me to work? I'm not going to fucking work to become famous. 
I'm just going to murder and then I'll be famous, right? And this is where, you know, there's people like they don't feel special in their everyday lives. So they go out and they kill a bunch of people because they know that the news is going to put that all over the press and being like, hey, this is, we, we here's our picture, here's our name, yep. here's this face, right? Absolutely. And then we just said, and 13 people dead. Yep, fine print. But we have the big photo in the name and whatever. So, for example, I didn't know this person, but this is a great example. A person named Sandy Hook. He researched the Northern Illinois University shooting and was obsessed with Columbine from the 90s. He had a list of mass murderers, including Aurora, on a spreadsheet who Aurora was the the last name of the person that did the university shooting. Sorry. So included Aurora on a spreadsheet complete with the killer's names, including the number of kills. So the more information that is at the fingertips of these people that are prone to violence... It just makes it easier for them because they're seeing what they can achieve. Notoriety is a reward for these people. Notoriety would have been a reward for Jill if she would have succeeded in becoming the survivor girl of that story. They don't have remorse. They don't care. It makes them easier to do this. And we definitely see an example of this all throughout the Scream franchise. The Woodsboro murders, yep. the stab movies, the, you know, this is, it's the notoriety and the, all that information was at, you know, Mrs. Loomis's fingertips, Mickey's fingertips, Cur- uh, not Kirby, sorry, uh, Charlie and Jill, like all this information was at their fingertips. They could just look it up, yep. read the book and just follow the examples of the movies. We even, in, like, especially in Scream 4, like they're fo- literally following the original formula of the movie, just yep. amping it up a bit to fit in to 2011 yeah and so this movement is to be like no stop let's stop doing this let's focus on the survivors let's focus on the victims you know and educate ourselves to remind ourselves that these are real people these are real lives that are being lost to these people who are just looking for some sort of either release or infamy whatever when they're going into these situations when they're doing these things we have to bring back the humanity to these murders to these crimes that are happening and this is what's the great about the scream franchise is that with sydney being our protagonist we're constantly reminded of the humanity of these murders of these crimes throughout the entire series I'm clapping. Uh, so I was like, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Fantastic point. Yes. Yes. And we come to the end of Scream 4. And this is so, so, just so poignant and perfect. At the very end of Scream 4, the reporters keep saying Jill's name over and over and over four to five yeah. times. They're labeling her a hero. They don't know the truth yet that she actually was the mastermind killer among all of this. But this twist is actually going to make her even more famous. They keep saying her name, but they're not talking about who was killed. Her mom was killed. All of her friends were killed. Cops were killed. Many innocent, good people, I'm assuming good people, were killed. But guess whose name that we're all going to remember? Jill. (sighs) Okay, on that note, we're going to end this great, dark discussion (laughs) ranking the Scream franchise and ranking our favorite films. Jess, why don't you go first with brief explanation on why your your rankings are as follows. Okay, so my rankings are (laughs) as follows, and I did include uh, number one just to be a completionist. So obviously, one, two, four, and three. Mm. For me, when you go one, two, four, I like it because you get this really kind of complete story in this narrative that just, you know, beginning to end, love it like Mm. I can walk Mm. away from it I put number three out there because to me that feels like a different movie it doesn't Mm -hmm. feel like it belongs in the Scream franchise because of how Hollywoodized it becomes and I think you said earlier Kevin Williamson did not write this one but he wrote the he wrote the other three 
So you can tell. Like, you yes. can tell. It's a, it feels like a very different movie. Yeah. And it maybe it was right for where it was then, yeah. but it There's no just, Wes. There's no Kevin. Yeah. It sticks out like a sore thumb I to agree. me in the franchise. Yeah. I agree. I agree. I know there are people that, like, love it and champion it, and it's great, but I think you're right. It sits better for its, like, own movie and outside of the franchise. And I would love to do a rewatch of doing one, two, four. So that probably is the better, like, trilogy. Yeah, yeah. Aspect of it. I am one, four, two, three. Oh, yes. Okay. I was also surprised because I always thought I was one, two, four, three. But watching them back to back, essentially four for the episode. So one, there is an aspect of this that is nostalgia glasses for sure. But I think it's an effective, iconic, quotable slasher. And I will love Scream forever until the day that I die. It is a wonderful, wonderful movie. Four is next because I think it is more of a story of death and rebirth. We talk mm. about Jill. We've got Sydney. It's scary again. It's very thought provoking. I think it's a very well made gory slasher film. And I just I, I ended up really loving it this time around. I really, really like how it ends and like how the like one, two, three, four, like how that asks how how the general story ends by by four. But I love four a lot. It's dark. It's it's just such a wonderful movie. Keeping this brief. Two. Two used to be my number two. And I do watch it more often than Scream 4. But that might change. That might change now. But it's bright. It's fun. It's campy. It's such a... It is still yeah. my favorite horror sequel of all time. It has Sarah Michelle Gellar. But when you watch them back to back to back, I just think as like a movie, I like four more. And it's also a little okay. bit more grimdark. I love the campy funness. I also like grimdark. But I think for that, it's me. Um, and then three is last. I think it's basic. It's a bit cringeworthy. Cringeworthy. Sorry. It's less funny. It's less scary. There's no Sarah Michelle Gellar. and those are our rankings (laughs) and those are our rankings for that and now we've arrived at spencer's final thoughts this time over a nice warm cup of tea provided by our sponsor brutalities since we're spinsters we obviously love tea one of our favorite things is to curl up with a movie on a cold rainy day or with a good book absolutely with a mug of delicious hot tea Tea. Brutalities is a company that we discovered at a horror convention and fell in love with. They have a variety of tea blends from black, white, and more, but what stood out to us was not just how yummy they were, but their spooky and metal-inspired names. With Screamsicle and Children of the Candy Corn, we thought Brutalities were a perfect match made in... I am obsessed with tiramisu. And I'm currently obsessed with Banana Bell. So go to Brutalities.com to grab some for yourself with listener code SPINSTER15 to get 15% off your purchase. For our Canadian fans, please contact them directly before ordering for shipping quotes. So now that we have our tea, let's put these spirits to rest. Don't fuck with the original. I love that line from Sydney in the fourth movie. To me, it encapsulates just how great not only the series is... But how great a character Sydney Prescott is. I know we didn't talk a lot her about her much throughout this. We focused more on Ghostface and the variety of, of killers. But her story in this whole series is powerful. She is our survivor. And we talked about this in the podcast. This story is about humanism. This is a story about her survival throughout this tragic experience going from a true crime event to eventually turns into a horrible serial killer horror movie type franchise but she's experienced it and she's lived it and she moves through it and that's what's amazing about that 
Also, digging into the Scream franchise now, I feel like there's so much more that can be unpacked later, and I would love to go come back and revisit this series again and talk more in depth about these different elements that we came across. Sydney, Gail, Dewey's story, everyone's stories, all the people who ends up getting captured in Billy Loomis's madness and the the ripple effect that he creates all throughout the series just because he was a sad, angry little boy. I love the Scream franchise for many reasons that we've talked about today. Hey, I would love to revisit this franchise because there is so much in this franchise to talk about. Other podcasts have done, quote, deep dives on Sidney Prescott. I think um, the Psychoanalysis podcast did a big one for a special appearance for a festival at some point. Horror queers, I know, have done great episodes on the Scream franchise and everything. Um, This is our interpretation of the franchise and what we wanted to focus on, which I think was really an interesting aspect of this franchise that... You know, when we get into our research, again, it sometimes takes us to places we had no idea that we were going to get into. But once we, you know, revisit films and think about this, there's interesting aspects of a lot of these films that we do cover on the podcast that we find interesting elements. And I'll bring up the Halloween episode because I think that's one of the standout ones to me that we was like, oh, we're coming to a dark place. And because those films are dark, that franchise is dark, we came to in our research, we're like, oh no, this, this is really, about stalking and obsession and unchecked, you know, toxic masculinity and male violence and stuff like that. So I love that. I love that about what we do. And the Scream franchise is just so ripe and ready for it to be plucked and dissected. And we just did so a little bit of it today. I think one overall theme in the series that I discovered is death, rebirth, and reinvention of yourself. Especially we see that in Scream 4 with our OG characters. They've kind of come like full fold. This is supposed to be, quote, the ending of the story. Sydney has come full circle and it's absolutely admirable that she was able to do a full 360 over the course of these movies because I see her in Scream 4 as this fully realized adult woman. There's a there's a maturity that I see in her in Scream 4 that I absolutely love. We rarely get to see that in horror movies and definitely not in our horror franchises. Dewey is in Scream 4. Dewey is now the sheriff of Woodsboro. That's the town he grew up in. That's where his family is from. His sister was killed there. Friends was killed there. With all the excitement he's seen in his lifetime, he wants to settle down with Gail, relax, probably solve some local non-intense crime. He wants the simple life. And who could blame him? Who could blame him? And of course, we can't forget about Gail Goddamn Weathers, who I love, the unsung complex hero of the series. From a trashy, exploitative reporter turned into a compassionate woman with a need to see shit get done right, I see myself more in her now as an adult than I did as a teenager. I was once a Sydney, and now I am a Gail. Jill so desperately wanted to be Sydney. The character was designed to be so obsessed that Emma Roberts was told to dye her hair brown to ensure that she resembled Sydney. Jill pretends to die and sets up her murder set pieces, like her murder tableau, her murder scene with her laying beside Sydney in the same pose. She was so obsessed with death and the rebirth of the hero that she can't see the big picture. I've got chills. And that is... Stories get reinterpreted and told over and over and over that people forget about the truth and the original story. People died horribly. And remember, Sydney's mom was raped and murdered by Billy. There is a darkness to this series that I don't think gets enough attention, and each film takes its turn to highlight 
the darkness and the depravities of our world. From revenge and the desire for fame to sexual assault and coercion in the film industry to the trappings of modernity and the abuse of technology, where can Scream 5 go that they haven't yet explored? I am so, so excited to find out what happens next. And that ends our next foray into 90s horror villains. It's been a journey already. We want to thank Dance the Dead for our intro outro music, Robeast, and Brandon for his work on our, all of our promotional materials. Also, thank you to all of our listeners. We want to remind you to follow us on our website, spinstersofhorror.com, on all of our social media, which is Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for Spinsters of Horror. We also have a Facebook group called the Spinsters of Horror Coven. We're also on Letterboxd now at Horror Spinsters, and we have a YouTube channel. Just look up Spinsters of Horror to find some of our videos there. As well, please rate and review us on iTunes. And we also have merch. Please visit TeePublic to purchase our t-shirts and donate. Next month is October in our high holy season of Halloween. Whee! So, wee! <laughs> so, to keep it spooky and fun, we're going to go back to the roots of cinematic horror from the 1920s and the 1930s with a look at our classic universal monsters, Dracula, Frankenstein, The Invisible Man, and The Mummy, and the most influential silent films of the era, Nosferatu and The Cabinet of Dr. Kilgari. So until then, remember, the future of fear is female. 